0: We need to really make sure that we get out the vote this November, that we engage. We are going through a lot and there is a lot to pay attention to, but we we cannot forget the responsibility that we have as U.S. uh, residents and citizens with the countries that we impact with our
1: policies. Hello everyone, this is Honey Mahogany. Welcome to Stud Stories. Stud Stories is a queer history podcast that focuses on the stud bar in San Francisco. Through Stud Stories and stories about the stud, we will talk about our queer history in San Francisco and the world. We're gonna talk to historians, DJs, drag queens, owners, workers, and patrons. But today, we are talking about politics because we have an incredibly important election coming up on November 3rd, 2020, which is in just a few weeks. Okay, everybody, thanks for tuning into our show. We have the incomparable Carolina Morales with us today. Caro, um, we have folks introduce themselves to our Stud Stories audience. So please tell me who is Carolina Morales.
0: Awesome. Thanks, honey, for inviting me and to the amazing Stud Collective for having this podcast. I'm Carolina Morales. I am an immigrant from Venezuela who's been living in San Francisco for the past 19 years. I am an organizer and I've been involved in San Francisco politics and social movements since 2003. And I've been working particularly around um, community wellness and racial justice politics with black and brown communities, queer and trans folks, um, and civic engagement in general.
1: Yeah, that is absolutely incredible to hear and to me speaks, you know, basically describes exactly who Carolina Morales is, someone who's politically engaged and queer as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um well, I actually want to start off a little bit the softball if you will. Um I wanted to talk a little bit about your connection to the Stud. So, what is mm. your connection to the legendary Stud bar? Do you remember the first time you heard about the stud or maybe the first time you walked through its doors tell me about that experience
0: yeah you know i actually don't remember how i heard about it but i remember my first time there i was 19 years old um i remember taking um two buses to get to soma uh from where i was living when i was 19 you know um a little queer trying to get to a drag show uh, by myself for the first time. I had heard of this Heclina lady that had outrageous shows um, and who had like great, great outfits. And so I got to the stud to to see her show. I think I think her shows were like at midnight. I don't, I mm-hmm. don't know. Mm-hmm. Was that true? Okay. I
1: think so, yes.
0: um, And I remember being there and just really being impressed by the way that she was like, kind of like calling things out. And I think, you know, we would call it maybe giving shade to people, but also being so in her power and her outfit being so so amazing. Um, and that same year I went to my first San Francisco Pride, uh, and I was just so excited to see Heclina walking down the street, um, not in the actual parade, but, you know, downtown in Civic Center. And I still have that picture, um, that I took with Heclina so proud that I was meeting her and, you know, being a little baby dyke at the time, um, it was it was very cute. But I don't actually remember who else she had invited to that show that night. But yeah, I was a a baby dyke at a Helena drag show at the stud.
1: What did she smell like? Do you remember?
0: Oh my God, she. You know what? If you had not asked that question. I would probably not remember, but yes, she always smelled delicious. <laughs> That's all I remember.
1: That's good like to know. delicious
0: perfume.
1: Good. That is good. It's better than most drag queens, I think. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um well, I definitely, I don't remember the first time I met Heclina. Well, actually I do. Um, I had gone to the stud before and seen her at Tranny Shack um but i have Tiny shack yes yes that's what it's called i know you know since the 90s when that show started i think that people now don't use that word as much anymore but mm. i feel like it's in the context of talking about the show um so my first time actually interacting with Heclina, i remember was actually when uh tranny shack was down in la and oh. I, yeah, so I was in college down in LA and um, I went down there and she was, or I was there and she, she was there doing a show. And I actually don't remember if it was Tranny Shack or if it was like a mashup between Tranny Shack and another party. Regardless, um, I was like, hi, Heclina, because I'd seen her around before. And she was like, oh, hi, honey. And I was like, oh my gosh, Heclina knows my name. Like, how cool. <laughs> and then later realized that she just says, hi, honey, to everybody. and had no idea who I was. Thank you for describing your journey, your first time at the stud. Um, What was it like for you as, you know, a queer woman of color in San Francisco at that time? Um, Had you been out long? Um, Had you been going to lots of different bars? I mean, you know, the queer scene, especially for women, has changed so much over time. So what was Mm -hmm. that like for you?
0: Mm, Yeah. Oh, my God. So at the time, I'd been out for about a a year, Um, but that first year was pretty difficult um, because I was living with my family who had a really, really hard time with uh, my being queer um, and tried to use um, a lot of power and control to, you know, try to get the queer out of me thinking that San Francisco had just been a bad influence (laughs) um onto me and and so actually you know uh by the time I went to Trani Shack I I think I'd only been to a few bars um also because you know I mean I was still under 21 and there were only like very particular like spaces that I knew I could get into um um or that I can use you know my um a friend of mine at the time that we thought we looked alike who was like I think like seven years older than me. Um, it was pretty hilarious. But the other bar that I loved going to was the cafe um, to the Latino, the Latino night, to Pan Dulce. Um, I would go there a lot actually. I, uh, I think I tried going to Badlands a couple of times but it was Pretty wide I really it didn't feel welcoming both racially and gender wise. Um, it it wasn't very diverse, and were there? I mean, I think over the years, then there there were a few more like women of color parties, but I feel like um, in in my memory they they were always kind of opening and closing, opening and closing, right? Um, the, the, especially you know queer women of color parties and you know g- going back to your show, you know your question around you know also that the politics of the time when I was 19 and I was at city college and I was working I was working two jobs and I was really aware you know in, I was Living through the, the difficulty of being working class and being queer in San Francisco and, and trying to make ends meet. And so I was very active at, in sitting college, uh, student government in the, I was a senator associated students council. And, and there I, you know, I got politicized by, by the work that we were doing, by the experience of, you know, my life and that, um, got me involved in, like, policy, you know, policy change and advocacy in um, organizing, right, and creating student uh, clubs and student organizations to bring folks together around um, food insecurity, around students who were unhoused, um, fee hikes, right, stopping fee hikes, um and uh, and also queer, uh, queer space and, and trying to, to bring more resources to, you know, being that San Francisco is considered the gay mecca of the US and sometimes even of the world, uh, it was pretty absurd to us that we didn't have a resource center for queer and trans students, um, especially at our main campus in Ocean. Um, and so we we worked really hard to start establishing that, and to talk to the chancellor, and to share stories around what students like me were experiencing on on campus and outside of campus, right? Like how it, the, our learning centers become a true resource for students around a lot of um, the needs that that we have, right? Like the ones that I mentioned, food and shelter and um, and, you know, psychological resources, community, et cetera, you know? So that kind of was the beginning of my getting politicized and getting involved in, in San Francisco uh, change and social movements.
1: And how do you think your identity as a queer immigrant of color affected or impacted your engagement? Um, did, did you find a lot of barriers to your engagement? um
0: what was that like mm. for you well at the beginning one of the biggest various barriers was language um even now 19 years later i still you know have an accent that i will have the rest of my life but um i was i was just learning english and so sometimes i felt a lack of confidence around expressing what I wanted to express or finding the right words to really um, convey what I wanted to say. And then finances, I think, was a big challenge, right? I mean, I was working two jobs. I was a child care, you know, domestic worker, and also was, uh, at the time, when I, especially when I was 19, I was working at um, the library at City College. I was a Spanish tutor, you know, just leveraging the language that I did know. <laughs> um, and that just left few, like, less time to actually be involved and organize. But somehow, I think probably, you know, being being that young, I had a lot more energy and was able to be a full time student, have two jobs and you know move around the city on on the bus and um because I remember at the time I couldn't even afford BART. Like BART was just too expensive. Um now BART is like more affordable than Muni, but that was not what it used to be when I was nineteen, which was two thousand two 2003, mm-hmm. I can remember. Um, so those were, you know, some of the challenges that I that I encountered at the time.
1: Mm-hmm. I know that you've done a lot of community work um, with, you know, QAV and other organizations in San Francisco, um, but you've also been heavily involved in politics. Uh, so how is it that you went from Working in nonprofits and advocating for uh, resources at um, CCSF to working in a supervisor's office.
0: Oh my lord, that's a great question. Um, so I, you know, after after I was able to transfer from City College to UC Berkeley. Um things got a little bit more difficult for me to stay involved in. So I actually took a couple of years, a little bit away from um, from organizing, or maybe one year from organizing. Um, and that's actually when, actually being at City College still, and being the president of the Queer Alliance at City, um, I met folks from COAV, from Community United Against Violence, which is the oldest LGBT, anti-violence organization in the nation located in San Francisco and born actually um, out of the White Knight riots, right? So the response to Harvey Milk's murder in San Francisco, right? The former supervisor. And so that's the amazing, you know, full circle history of of Kuwait and, and, and I met this crew of volunteers that were talking about the work that they did at schools, right? So going into schools and talking about um, queer and trans issues and, and bringing it real home by, you know, sharing their personal stories of coming out and the difficulties, like the, the good, the bad and the ugly with, with youth. Um, and I was really inspired by that and uh I um applied to be part of of that program and and to work with them um and so that's how I started working with CUAV, um at the, with the speakers bureau and i and then you know i didn't do a, a lot of work at UC Berkeley with their you know neither with the student organizations or with any other organization because it was pretty rough to try to um be a full-time student at Berkeley with the academic rigor that that institution um, exige, right, which, like, requires. That, you know, like, maintaining the the, the academic rigor um, of that institution and trying to get there on the bus and still having two jobs. So I because I couldn't afford BART, I had to take one bus to the Greyhound Terminal, which now is called something else. And so then I would take that bus that crosses the bridge and takes you to to Berkeley, right? And so the the trip could be over two hours long, one way. So I, you know, every time I would go to school, it would be like a minimum of four hours on, you know, on public transit, plus, having, you know, to study, plus the two jobs, which were still being a domestic worker and also working as a server at a restaurant downtown. Um, so, which again, you know, those, those kind of social and economic conditions continue to politicize me and to really bring home the, the realities that we needed to change and the reality that violence, you know, like, vulnerability to violence is directly connected to racism, class issues, um, and sexism, right? That all of those pieces, right, that, that come together within me as a person, as a whole person, um, kind of inspired me to apply to work at KUAV at a, at a more kind of formal position, full time position. Uh, once I graduated from from Berkeley and so I started working with them and actually providing counseling and case management to survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault also engaging the organization in a major transition from being only a social services organization to also doing organizing and leadership development with the survivors that were participating in our programmatic work and through that work, you know, and being a, a young queer, you know, radical at the time, I, I didn't really believe in electoral politics, to be honest. I thought, you know, that's all corrupt people that are all about their egos and they don't really care about any of us down here, they're way up there. And in 2008, with a really horrible murder case that happened in San Francisco, then Mayor Gavin Newsom, uh, passed a decree that made juvenile probation officers ask all these like racist questions to youth to try to determine if they were immigrants so that they could call Ice and start a deportation proceeding um, because the the murder, the big murder case at that time, um, it, it was an an undocumented immigrant who fired shots and, and, and ended up killing this um, uh, this family. It was like really horrifying case, right? Um, and you know we sh- we should know better than to create laws or, or policies based on one single case and kind of affecting everybody in that community because of one person. Um, and so with responding to that uh, xenophobic and uh, in, in kind of racist policy at the time, I got to meet then supervisor David Campos and saw the authenticity and honest that he he brought into the room when all of this organizers and people on the ground came with with stories and with requests of of policy change. And that really changed my mind of um, what government could look like, what government could uh, be, that it could truly be in the service of the people, and uh, started my journey into being part of uh, policy making and policy change in San Francisco uh, from the place of working at, at a nonprofit um, that uh, addressed issues at the intersection of violence, uh, racial profiling, immigration detention, right? Like seeing those two pieces, those two pieces that I just mentioned as state violence, right? So we have interpersonal violence, which is domestic violence, sexual assault, and other, right, violence that are similar. And then state violence that, that is performed uh, from state officials uh, against um, everyday people, right? Which transgender women of color experience all the time from police, from uh government benefit workers, healthcare workers, etc. cetera, right? Um, so that, you know, after 10 years of being at co and getting to do that work uh, more deeply and more often, you know, the policy work, I, I transitioned out of the organization and got to work for Supervisor David Campos and then Supervisor Hilary Ronan, um, both of the Mission District.
1: In my mind, I feel like you have a pretty good pulse on politics in San Francisco. So, for those, for for our listeners who have no idea what that's like, can you describe the SF political scene?
0: Mm. Mhm. Yeah. Oof. So, you know what I learned early on, um, when I still didn't know about this. You know what you call factions that you know the usually we we. I now know it's, you know, progressives and, and moderates or, or corporate Democrats. Um, what I knew was, oh, there are people who create policies with the community, and whether it's input from the community or directly brought from grassroots-based building organizations and movements. Um, and in other elected that I was like, where where are these people getting their ideas from? And then come to find out sometimes even from big corporations and lobbyists. So, uh, and that's still the reality, right? So when um, we say there are two factions, which are progressives and, and um, corporate Dems or moderates, it's because we... Are very fortunate that we have uh, usually only Democrats win I mean I actually don't know when a Republican has won in San Francisco I mean there might be but I don't I don't know I just know it in my nineteen years of history in San Francisco that hasn't been the reality so so there is some more kind of like nuanced differentiation within the Democrats that win elections um, who they are kind of like accountable to mainly right it's always there are always exceptions of course I mean nobody is 100% anything but um, there is uh, one kind of faction that it's the progressive faction consider more left more accountable to grassroots and base building organizations and movements more accountable to their own constituents in their the neighborhoods they represent And the moderate faction that's considered uh, a little more center, center right, uh, that listens to the needs, quote unquote, of big corporations um, and that usually have kind of like a harder time connecting with uh, grassroots movements and the more working class sectors of, of the city. And there, you know, the Democratic Party, obviously, because it's the majority in San Francisco, then there are all of these different clubs that are connected to the central committee of the Democratic Party that both you and I uh, are serving in right now. And, right, these clubs help um, everyday San Franciscans be connected to uh, the civic engagement process and and help people really you know get elected right and and make sure that um, that these electors are also uh, being held accountable or at least that's the idea right of many of those clubs and one of the examples is of course the Harvey Milk LGBT Democratic Club that you and I uh, both uh, presided together. Um, where I was so honored and, and grateful to to meet you and get to work alongside you. And let's see what other pieces I think are important around. The election? honor was
1: all mine, just FYI.
0: Oh, lady, thank you <laughs> <laughs> I think I guess another piece that is important is that we always have to think about the two main kind of like legislative roles that the Board of Supervisors has in San Francisco, if we don't have a city council because because we're both a, a city and a county. Uh, we only have one legislative body. Most places, right, most cities have two bodies, right, the, the city council and then the, the county Board of Supervisors. We only have one um, that combines the, you know, the responsibilities or duties of both. And because of that, our supervisors both have to pay attention to this the nuanced neighborhood needs of their district, right? And also the citywide landscape uh, that connects to that, right? So, for example, in the mission, uh, I don't know what the current reality might be, but I, I know that even when when um, two, two years ago, it was like ground zero for the tent encampment crisis for, you know, where our unhoused population was residing. We had over 300 unhoused people living in tents in the Mission neighborhood, right, which is a... A small, right, neighborhood in, in San Francisco, and yet when you look at the entire city, we know that the city was going through and is still going through a homelessness crisis, right, the fact that a lot of people cannot afford to live in the city because they've been pushed out, displaced, in the mission in particular, it was very racialized. It was a majority Latino uh, neighborhood that kept getting more expensive and kept uh, uh, the, the makeup of the residents kept changing from a more working-class and middle-class neighborhood to a more upper-middle-class uh, neighborhood, um, and where, it, where it used to be mostly families, Right now, is a lot of uh, individuals, and uh, which you know, make a lot of money, and this are two realities that sometimes it's hard for for voters to um, assimilate. Because, of course, you know, as a voter, I I want my neighborhood to feel safe, to look good, um, and there has been a big push, particularly in the past five years, uh, for supervisors to pay more attention to neighborhood needs and to try to uh, put in second place citywide policies, which is difficult. It's really difficult because a lot of our our kind of micro problems um, in our districts are symptoms of the right? Larger problems that our whole county, you know, in San Francisco is experiencing. So that's, I think, something that is important to kind of remind listeners and to learn together about in terms of uh, the politics of the city. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I want to shift gears, and this is a good segue, I think, into um, something else that you are very involved in, which is advocacy around international politics and policies. Um, you've been an outspoken critic of, for example, the U.S.'s relationship with Venezuela recently. Um, so what is what is your perspective on U.S. imperialism? I know that's a big topic, but specifically as it relates to, maybe you can talk about it specifically as it relates to uh, the U.S.'s relationship with Venezuela and um, the things that you have been active and participating in.
0: Yeah, so I am um, in, on the board of the Center for Political Education, which is a San Francisco-based organization that uh, was founded by this wonderful group of organizers in San Francisco from different sectors, including um, our, you know, legendary Eric Casada, who passed away from cancer a uh, few years back, and. It's an organization that seeks to provide more access to political knowledge, political analysis, um, to the everyday people, the everyday San Franciscans. Um, And the organization has a very clear view. And the clear view is that every nation deserves sovereignty, right? That we should be putting people over profits and... um, and it has, you know, a series of other points of unity, including, of course, that we should be fighting against racism, uh, xenophobia, transphobia, homophobia, and not, you know, all of the um, oppressive systems in our society. And one of uh, the great things that the Center for Political Education does is connect our local fights for justice with our international uh, involvement, so the United States, in particular, has positioned itself as a nation that wants to "quote unquote" um, export democracy. Um, that we are "quote unquote" the leaders of the leader of the free world, right? We um, we like to think about our country because I also call it my country. I'm a naturalized citizen here, living here for 19 years. Um, I don't believe that only citizens should consider it their country, by the way, but I just wanted to clarify that for the public. Um, And given that kind of like self-imposed kind of title and role, We should take that very seriously and be very accountable to our behavior with other nations. And so as somebody who considers themselves an internationalist, I pay a lot of attention to what are we doing to, especially countries that are geographically very close, like what are our policies with Mexico and with other countries in Central America, with Puerto Rico, that it's supposedly a a U.S., you know. It's a US, It's not a U.S. state, but it's a, an added territory. And so they are beholden to our laws, but they're not allowed to participate in the political process. So things like that that I think are important to pay attention to and to try to notice how they connect uh, with the local issues that we care about. For example, as Trump has continued to wage a war, against immigrants particularly you know latinx and black immigrants there has been a righteous and very i'm very proud to see a lot of people that have come out to support immigrants in san francisco you know whether literally coming out of their homes and onto the streets uh on protest actions and rally and also you know Coming out from their homes, supporting local organizations, voting for um, any measures that are go- that support uh, immigrants and, and the right of immigrants to be treated with dignity, like human beings, right? To recognize the contributions of those of us who are immigrants, right? Um, and so, because we care about that and and have been involved also as the city and county of San Francisco, in fights against building a bigger border wall. It also fights against um, the uh, incarceration of, of immigrant children and immigrant families at the border, right? The, the banning of asylum seekers to come into this country, the um, scapegoating of refugees, because we care about all of those issues, it's important that we kind of like dig deeper and understand that there is a clear connection between the policies that the U.S. has implemented um, related, you know, to these countries around us um, and this refugee crisis, you know, particularly speaking about the immigrant caravan. that kind of like new wave of the refugee crisis is directly connected to the policies of the U.S. in Honduras, for example. So the caravan started in Honduras. And guess what? In 2009, the United States CIA was involved with uh, military forces in Honduras in a coup. They kidnapped, literally, The president, in the middle of the night, they kidnapped the Honduran president that was democratically elected because the U.S. didn't like the policies that he had in his platform, which were all prioritizing their own country, their own people, nationalizing resources, which means making sure that resources come back to the people of that land. And so, of course, you see now 10 years later, the results of having a puppet put in by the United States that doesn't truly care about their own people, that just cares about whatever the U.S. tells them to do. And so there is a lot of violence. Like Honduras is one of the most violent countries in Central America, together with El Salvador, which also, right, is another product of years of civil war, funded by the United States during the Reagan years, right? And so, again, the more we pay attention to the policies, including funding, that the United States leverages uh, in other countries for our own benefit, right, rather than the benefit of both parties, the more we understand that some of the issues that are affecting us right here and right now are a direct product of that. And so in Venezuela in particular, of course, I care about it because that's where my parents still reside. My 90 year old grandmother still lives there too, right? I have family and friends and loved ones in Venezuela. And the economic sanctions have been creating a worse economic crisis in the country. And right now during COVID-19, It has been very irresponsible and actually murderous, in my view, that the United States not only has continued the sanctions, but Trump just announced last week, last week, so this is very timely, that sanctions against Cuba and Venezuela have increased. So basically, they're tightening the rope around our necks in Venezuela. What, does, what do economic sanctions mean? It means that the country is not allowed to import uh, products from certain countries, including the United States and any of its allies. Who are the U.S. allies? Most of the countries around us, including Colombia, who's like completely basically owned by the United States. Um the same with, obviously, the U.S. is geographically very close, so we tend to import some products from the U.S. in the way that the U.S. imports most of their products from China, right? Where it's not like we are some, like, strange country that imports all these products and what do you mean that you're so dependent on other countries? The United States, if we couldn't um, do trade with other countries, would be in a horrible shape horrible horrible shape. We are a little bit more lucky in California cuz we are like the fourth economy of the world and we, you know, produce so much of the of the food of of the nation, but let me tell you other other states would be suffering even more. And so I think that it's important that we engage in local and national politics because our, our federal representatives uh, wage uh, their power to basically start wars or increase sanctions, manipulate other countries, steal resources from other countries. In Venezuela in particular, a lot of these, these economic sanctions have been led by Republicans, in particular Republicans that are like people like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz are people behind um pushing these kinds of sanctions. So we need to really make sure that we get out the vote this November, that we engage. I know that there are so many problems that we are surviving through during this pandemic. I get it. I am unemployed. I lost my part time job um, because of COVID. So I get it. We are going through a lot and there is a lot to pay attention to but we we cannot forget the responsibility that we have as U.S. uh, residents and citizens with the countries that we impact with our policies. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was so well said. I just want to underline that, you know, it's understandable that a country would look out for its own best interests. But I think that we also have to acknowledge that when we manipulate situations in a way that is so aggressive as, for example, removing heads of states um, and creating economic sanctions that we often are not really looking far enough into the future to see the impacts, um, the long-term impacts, not just on that country, but also on us, right? The, tri- the, the impacts that do trickle down. I mean, and I, that was very famously the situation that happened with Saddam Hussein, right? Um, who himself was placed in power by the U.S and then became inconvenient to the U.S., and the U.S. then removed him from power under false pretenses. And, you know, now later on, this is co- all coming out that there were no, you know, weapons of mass destruction, etc., etc. but that this was all done in our own self-interest, um, which <laughs> maybe that's a bad example because that is obviously, like, the worst kind of self-interest you can have. Um, <laughs> um, but just underscoring the idea that, like, we are our brother's keeper or our sister's keeper, um, because what happens across the, we live in a globalized society and what happens on the other side of the globe eventually will impact us as well. Um, and I think that that's a tenant that we can carry with us, even when we're looking at our ballot measures that you know we may be housed right now. But if're if we're ignoring the people who are unhoused and allowing you know the situation on our streets to continue to devolve and worsen, then we are not just hurting them, but also hurting ourselves, right? Um, so with that, um, I, I guess I wanted to end on this note, which is um, giving your, um, your experience as um, an immigrant, as a woman, as someone who has been involved in advocacy efforts and also worked in politics What advice would you give to people who are like you, who are out there and are looking to get more involved? Where should they begin? Where should they start? Um, How can they uh, participate?
0: Well, I would actually would not only suggest but beg people to start by volunteering in local organizations that are serving our most vulnerable. I think that having the grounding of being a person of service gives us a certain kind of humility and stance that then is very useful for uh, kind of like the civic engagement part of our um, of our aid or our contributions or getting involved, right? Um, I think that Yes, of course. I mean, people can go to the our San Francisco Democratic Party website and sign on to be part of one of our many wonderful clubs, um, and you can do that at the same time as you volunteer for our local organization. But I think it's important to not forget that piece, to really, under, to really kind of feel and witness uh, more closely. Uh, and humanize more, right, the realities of our most vulnerable communities. I think it's really, really critical. Um, Otherwise, we run the risk of not fully understanding um, what the full picture might be in a certain issue when we're part of of a club and perhaps um, advocate for something that might be a little harmful or might be, um, kind of like bringing negative, um, consequences down the line. And so, and I also think in general, all of us benefit from kind of having a more humble stance in anything that we engage in. And politics is so full of ego and so full of people who, um, are out there to like watch their own backs and their own benefits that, Um, It it is a a really great grounding to start by being a volunteer in any of our wonderful uh,
1: organizations locally. Well, thank you for that. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I definitely don't get to talk to you enough. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's also honestly inspiring to hear you. And also, I think that I hear a lot of myself. In your story, because you know, also, even though I am not an immigrant myself, my family are immigrants. I actually mm-hmm. had a very similar um, story of when I was outed because I did not come out, but I was outed to my family. Mm. That they also were like, "You need to get away from the negative influences of the U.S. and started working in nonprofits, and then got into sort of pulled into politics due to my work in nonprofits." So I feel, you know, very. Oh, there's a lot. We have a. A sincere kinship i think um so it's been it's been great sharing um the last few years working together with you and i'm excited that i'm getting to serve on the san francisco democratic county central committee with you and um thank you so much for joining us on our podcast here
0: of course thank you for this conversation
1: thank you all for listening to stud stories If you liked this episode and don't want to miss any future stud stories, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take the time to rate and review us. Your reviews and ratings help keep us up there in the iTunes ranking, which means more rad queers and new listeners can find us. And if you really want to support the stud and help this legendary queer bar find its forever home, please subscribe to our Patreon account. Patreon subscribers get early access to stud stories, special access to our archival research and materials, and more. To get your very own stud sweatshirt, t-shirt, or tank, or to find out more about new merch and all other stud updates, visit our website studsf.com. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, since we can't party with you in person right now, we invite you to join us every Saturday at 6.30pm for our weekly virtual drag show, Drag Alive, at twitch.tv dragalive. Stud Stories is produced and edited by Tara Haywood, written and produced by Micah Sigourney, a.k.a. Vivian Forevermore, along with production manager and researcher Ben McGrath, and music by Paige Turner. I was your host, Honey Mahogany. Stay studly, everyone.